Is data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Hey, welcome to Data Reveal. Mark Fideli here. And before we jump into our full episode with Chris Wilson, I just wanted to give you what I think is the big takeaway, or you could call it the main reveal of the episode. We reached a consensus that we're at an inflection point with data, specifically data for decisions. Now, you don't need to be at the minority report level or even, you know, Jarvis to tell you what you need to decide or suggest and make recommendations with all the power of AI. We're not there yet. But leadership is needed now, maybe more than ever, as 5G comes online, as the number of complex issues just throttle the mind. The data that can be pulled together in a format, in a way that can be useful for making decisions. Chris Wilson's done it. He's done it in an acquisition war room that he'll describe at the level he's allowed to, but you can read between the lines. The data's there. The processing power's there. The tools are there. The need is there. So what's the gap? And the gap, of course, is culture. Just this week, I read that the Air Force chief software officer resigned over concerns about basically culture and tradition. And those aren't bad things, but they could stand in the way of progress. And if progress is needed to outpace adversaries and get ahead of threats and be efficient with the use of budgets, then traditions might have to go. That's hard, but that's what the inflection point really means. So listen carefully. Hope you enjoy this episode of Data Reveal. Welcome to the Data Reveal podcast. My name is Mark Fidelli, joined with Courtney Hastings and Andrew Churchill. Welcome. Hello. Howdy. We are joined by our special guest, Chris Wilson, our friend and colleague, and we're so excited to have you join us here. Chris, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. We're excited too. Now, the quick disclaimer, of course, this is a click-sponsored podcast, but the opinions expressed on the podcast by the hosts or guests are our own and do not necessarily reflect click. However, we absolutely aspire to the inclusive strategy and culture of click, and so we hope that this is in the spirit of uh, what we do every day. So, Chris, as we get started, you're an analyst, long history as an analyst, weapons of mass destruction expert, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear and more recently from the acquisition world. From a military perspective, you've done a lot. Just curious, give us the once over of your career journey and uh, how you got into the work that you did and, and just some of the highlights that, uh, that you could share with our audience. Sure, that's a, a interesting story and probably a little bit longer than we have time for, so I'll, I'll keep it brief. I always say it's, it's six miles long and only about an inch deep, but I, uh, was very, very lucky in my career. I, I joined active duty army at a young age, not even out of high school yet, and uh, went to Germany for my first assignment in what we typically refer to as the, the big green army. So it was a traditional chemical core company that had you know a recon, decon, and um, smoke operations. And I was actually lucky enough to do all three of those missions while in 
theater in Germany, started off in a smoke unit and then went over to reconnaissance and then got to do decon. Um, from there, I went to Germany and again, was very lucky. I went to Fort Bragg and got the opportunity to serve at the 18th Airborne Corps headquarters as the uh, primary chemical, biological and radiological representative for the, the 18th Airborne Corps commander um, in the HHC unit. You know, and everyone said, go airborne and go to Fort Bragg and you'll stay forever. And <laughs> I, I believed that. And I was only there about 10 months. Part of that was due to my my own choices. I uh, went through a couple of uh, selections and got picked up for a special mission unit to go to D.C. and help stand up and be a charter member for a uh, National Capital Region Emergency Response Team for Chem Bio. And we had two parts to that. We had an EUD side and then a, an NBC or a CBRN side. So I was obviously on the CBRN side, did that for a couple of years, came down on orders to go to Korea. The family at the time was like, hey, that's a little bit too much. You know, what are your other options to kind of keep everyone together and stay in D.C.? So I transitioned from active duty and then was, again, very blessed to be able to uh, work at Defense Threat Reduction Agency doing critical infrastructure vulnerability analysis. Um, typically a 12-person team, and it ranged everything from physical security, cybersecurity, and I was more or less on the emergency management side, even though there was a specific emergency manager, I focused on you know HVAC systems, effective plume stack heights, potential threats, vulnerabilities, not just for facilities and critical infrastructure, but also on the dip side, the defense industrial base manufacturers for critical weapon systems. After that, did a short stint at DITRA doing special mission programs for soft forces, special operation forces under SOCOM. And then went down to Quantico, did a tour with uh, McSiddick Marine Corps Combat Development Command as a requirements officer, learned all the wonderful things about 5,000 series acquisitions, requirements generations, uh, joint programs, and those great things. And this brings us to about 07. And there was a significant shift at that time on the UCP, the Unified Command Plan, which gets updated typically every four to eight years, depends on the administration. But two, two things to note was it dubbed two new missions for US DRAFCOM. One was the synchronization and integration for combating weapons of mass destruction, and the other was to be the warfighter voice for missile defense. So I, I, I said, aha, here's a belly button. I'm going to go out to STRATCOM, and I'm going to you know, be able to do some great things. And I, I uh, had a humbling experience at that time because I, I learned you have to redefine success because in like many things in DoD, there is no true belly button. It, it really is a dynamic and involving environment. So I was, I was out there for about eight and a half years, worked in the J3 and the J8, did a lot of work with the J5, met my lovely wife who had orders to go to Vegas. So I went out to Vegas and continued to support J3. And then after that came to DC, did one more tour at DITRA, and then was lucky enough to get picked up to come over to Missile Defense Agency and and help lead the development of their acquisition war room under the executive director for acquisition. And then shortly after that, went over to NGA as an enterprise risk analysis for technical risk. And Click Federal team reached out and said, you know, hey, Chris, we've been working with you for a few years and you're pretty passionate about this data field. How would you feel about joining the team? And, you know, yet again, I like an adventure and a challenge. So I said I would love to. And that brings me to today. That's awesome. To unpack there, and for our audience that isn't familiar with uh, a lot of the terms, I think we'll get a chance to to get into those. But the the audience that we've all worked with that spans sort of military and technology, I'm guessing the DIB, the Defense Industrial Base. You know, it's easy to think about software firms or technology firms or you know weapons manufacturers, but 
What's it like to work with those who provide some of the most scary, dangerous weapons in the whole world? And you think about the defense, their industrial base. Obviously, we're all aware of supply chain risks today. Just a quick follow-up, and then we'll get into some other questions. But you mentioned DIB, defense industrial base. It's a hot term today. What was that like dealing with those who manufacture the kinds of things that, uh, you know, go into weapons of mass destruction? You know, that was it was really exciting to be able to see a lot of the commercial side, you know, because up, up till that point, I had only seen the, the warfighter application side, you know, how the surfaces are actually employing those capabilities. But to to get to see it from a manufacturability and endurability, you know, some of those those itties out there, it was real interesting because we we as actual employers of those systems don't often think about that. And you hit on a critical point, you know, in today's time, supply chain is in the forefront of a lot of discussions for some very good reasons, but it's nothing new. We were actually discussing this 20 something years ago on how do we ensure these production lines of these low quantity, but high impact items, you know, one that we couldn't speak of then, but now can be spoken of openly was Global Hawk. You know, we were producing very, very few numbers and any hiccup in that supply chain of the parts or in the manufacturing of that had a very real and immediate impact on real world missions. You know, so it was it was real exciting to be able to go in and help those industrial bases make sure that they were, you know, taking all the precautions needed to ensure the delivery of those systems. That's great. And real quick, and then we'll sort of open it up for discussion. One of the things we've done here is just reflected on 9-11. So obviously, Global Hawk was one of the big uh, UAVs that came out of uh, sort of post 9-11. But on 9-11 itself, what were you doing? Can you sort of describe your experience that day? Do you Obviously, I'm sure you remember it. What, do you remember it being like a clear turning point in your career? I know we all look at it that way. Courtney was still in school, but still, it, she's here. So uh, it made an impact. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, there's not very many people that can say that, you know, where they're at today isn't influenced by the, you know, experiences and things that they've they've worked on in the past. So we always look through that filter. You're absolutely right. I can very clearly remember the exact moment in time when September 11th happened. So during that time, I was actually part of the National Capital Region mission under Delta Company for Tech Escort. And as, you know, part of our qualification certification, we used to have to do tours at what are called Superfund sites, which is a whole discussion in and of itself. But one such Superfund site is up at American University called Spring Valley. And many, many, many years ago, it wasn't a university. In fact, it was an undeveloped area. And there were munitions that were actually stored and disposed of there. So for the past, oh, heck, since 1991, so 30 plus years, we've been, you know, remediating that site. So I was actually on site in a level A suit and digging up 155 uh, mortar rounds as part of that remediation when it happened. So they they came over the push to talk radio and said, hey, we need everyone to, to come out and go through decon. We had just gotten in the hole, so we still had 45 minutes of air left. Highly unusual, you know, not, not completely alien, but odd for that to happen. So we get out, we're not given a whole bunch of explanations. You know, we're asked if we have our our A bags with us, you know, which we kind of carried because of the response. And then they let us know that the, the rest of our unit was actually at the Pentagon responding to that and that we would, would have to go and support them. So that answers the, you know, the question of where I was. Now, as far as it had a, 
a pivotal turning point? Again, not really, because I was in such a unique, unique position. You know, I was had actually been in positions to deal with real world situations that that most people didn't have an opportunity to to work with or understand. Now, it, it was shocking that this was happening on American soil, you know, and, and not downrange in some of the places uh, that we were deployed to at the time. But, you know, in, in the mix of that, it was, I don't want to say another day at the, another day at the office, but the training really kicked in and the, the unit just did, you know, what they were trained to execute. That's well said. I know Andrew and Courtney have had their time to reflect as we've even thought about the podcast. And one of the big things we talk about is, is, you know, time reveals, data reveals the ground truth. And I guess my sort of real kickoff question is, what's the ground truth about a super fun site? Can we learn more about that? And can we yes, go? I need to know. <laughs> Absolutely. You can look it up. So it's, I, I don't remember the exact history without, you know, actually Googling it myself, but it's called super fun because the federal government dumped a, a massive amount of money into this Uber checking account. And then whenever private entities or government entities uh, create, you know, gross contamination or environmental atrocities, they get fined. And those fines go back into this fund to help remediate those. And then there's also, you know, civil penalties on these organizations to help remediate the site, to clean them up, things like that. Super fund. I thought it was super fun. (laughs) No D. I was like, Wow. Like an Dollars. amusement park. How did well, I miss out? Mark, if if you're not familiar with the site that uh, that Chris is talking about, it's 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 only about a mile walk from us. So uh, you can get up there and uh, go try to find some of the unexploded ordnance that was uh, lying around the Spring Valley AU property at the time. That's a, a little field trip for us uh, Bethesda guys coming up soon. But it is fun. Super fun. Chris, and this is maybe the the kickoff pivot question that we've been asking. And on this podcast last time, we had Dr. David Gartenstein-Ross, who's a veteran of sort of the counterterrorism world and thinking about radicalization and those kinds of, of things. And we asked him the same question. We'll ask you, what did the national security community get right after 9-11? What are we building on now? It's easy to think, okay, these 20 years later, Afghanistan has happened and folks are saying, what a waste, 20 years of a waste. I'm sure you don't view it that way. We all have to sort of build on what happened. It's a much more digital world now. Data is everywhere. And really for all of us, what, what can we build on from your perspective, Chris, that came directly out of the response to the events on 9-11 at the Pentagon uh, in Pennsylvania and obviously the World Trade Center? You know, that's, that's a real interesting question because, you know, to, to define what we've got is right, you really have to, you know, go to the left a little bit and define what is success and failure. You know, and that's, that's one of the biggest challenges, in, you know, in any great endeavor is how do you define success and how do you measure success, you know, so that you can see, okay, what, what worked, what didn't work and, and what was right. You know, I've, I've always believed that a, a predominant part of government and the employees and the, you know, industrial base, we, we all want to do what's right. But the challenge comes in in understanding what the right thing is and what's right today may or may not be right tomorrow. And none of us are clairvoyant, you know, so that you can get in this whole, you know, spiral spin of philosophy. But to, to get to the point of your question, we got a lot of things right. 
And one of the things is at the tactical and the operational level, you know, so the tip of that spear, if you will, is communication and comms. Great example, 9-11. It was very difficult for DOD to speak in real time to the Fairfax County Fire Department. It was very difficult for the Fairfax County Department to speak to the Pentagon Force Protection Agency. There was a lag because a lot of the systems weren't fully compatible because of roles, authorities, responsibilities. So some of it was policy-based, some of it was doctrine-based, and some of it was technology-based. So a great leap forward today is, you know, we now have actual policy established that facilitates that communication across the federal agencies. We have technology in place that allows the communication across the different systems in real time or near real time to be able to uh, expedite the transfer of data. You know, so if if I had to pick one of the greatest impactful things that we got right, it's that. It's the um, expedition of communication um, for data and not raw data, but actual, you know, communication back and forth. I find that so interesting that that's what you say that we got right. Because if you listened to the last podcast, my pseudo connection to 9-11 after I graduated college (laughs) was uh, working for the Association of Public Safety Communications Officials. And starting there when I did, the vast majority of my time there, which was eight and a half years, was spent laying the groundwork for, for what is now known as FirstNet and solving those interoperability issues that they struggled with that day. And I feel like at the time, you know, even the years after 9-11, it was looked at as a huge failure. So I'm glad to see that, you know, now it's looked at, at least by you, and I agree, as a success about how how quickly they turned that around. Wow, that, that's interesting. No, I, I didn't know you, you were involved in that. And you're right. I know, I know a lot of a lot of peers and counterparts would still say, you know, that it it could have been better. But you know, it's easy to armchair quarterback something, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. We can always do better. We can always go faster. We can always, you know, go go farther. But you know, the the challenge is that it is progress, and it's been significant progress. And we need to continue to build upon that success and uh, push the ball forward. Chris, how would you measure that success? And how would you measure like pushing the ball forward? And maybe this helps sort of loop in Courtney's sort of question or experience. What wasn't working? I mean, the beauty of data theoretically is you can measure and improve things. Practically, there's a million steps besides just getting data and measuring that, you know, culture and systems access and all that. So as you think about interoperability, broad theme, you know, Great power competition is now the term of art when describing the world we're in, not sort of post 9-11, but dealing with, you know, near peer threats. And we know what that means. So what does measuring interoperability now, building on that success such that it was, right, not perfect, how do you measure interoperability? Is it resilience? Is it the amount of data going between organizations? Is it the numbers of policies that you can remove so that it's easier for a lower level person to pick up the phone without getting blowback? Like what, let's be candid here. What do you think it's going to take to get as interoperable as we can be? What are the measures? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult and subjective question. So strictly, you know, looking through my filter and lens of experiences and jobs and interactions, you know, over the past 26 years, I, 
I think it's not much different than what I just described. You know, the ability to actually communicate, you know, on September 11th, on the ground, it was, was the actual army units able to speak to the fire department? Was the fire department actually able to speak to the Pentagon Force Protection Agency? So today, I would open that aperture and say, is everyone able to actually communicate with the data? So Michael Conlon that we all know, you know, often I've heard him say, questions matter more than facts. And that's really resonated with me. You know, and, and for the listeners that don't know, he was the chief data officer and the uh, chief business analytic officers for DOD for uh, close to three years. But the the reason that really resonates to me is facts are a snapshot in time. They don't provide context. They don't provide, you know, forward or backwards perspective. It's just just a single instance. So being able to communicate with the data in those different mission sets, I think, is how we measure success today. You know, what are those follow-on questions that you can ask? You know, it's it's one thing, going back to the DIB, it's one thing to know how much a weapon system costs. It's another thing to understand why it cost that much and what led to those requirements that drove that cost and why was the technology chosen chosen the way it was. You know, so being able to have that that conversation with your data is like the key metric for me, because if it if it can't tell me a story and can't give me the context, then it, it's not really providing a whole lot of value. It's still value, but not as much as I would desire or like. I would add to that too, that it's also about sort of everyone operating from a single source of truth, everyone being able to access the data. I think that's a, an analogy as well. No, Courtney, that's a great point. You know, so we're we're all familiar with you know the NASA story about we built we spent billions on this ballpoint pen that could operate in space. Well, funny thing is the the premise around that whole story is completely false because one NASA didn't spend that. It was actually an individual that owned a company that spent a majority of the money, and it was only a million dollars. And the entire understanding on why that was spent and developed, you know, is often misrepresented too. So, you know, a, a very tangible thing that we've all heard, but yet almost everyone gets it wrong because we don't have that single authoritative, you know, source of truth or that single pain uh, view. So when I hear of what you guys are saying, the ability to communicate, the ability to use the same data, even ask some of the same questions with that data, I, I think of network effects, right? The networks that are the most powerful and influential in the world, you know, social media, but also TV networks, right? There's, there's, and you know, in the Defense Department, the advanced analytics platform, Advana, these networked capabilities that exist to bring more than the sum of its parts sort of together to answer, to ask, to your point, Chris, and answer questions. Are those network effects occurring as much as they need to in the government compared to, you know, everyone's so afraid of the big social media brands and them getting further ahead? They have massive network effects. And of course, it's an ethical question. It's a, you know, it's a business question. Do we want to have huge, massive networks of, you know, government agencies with all the data? How do you feel, Chris, in your experience, the, the naysayers who say, you know, wait, we need to really constrain and throttle the defense community? Because obviously in a world that's uncertain, you know, Americans want to know that they're putting their taxpayer dollars to work and they're getting, you know, some deterrent effects, network effects. So it seems like what we're talking about, this interoperability is so that 
We can do the things that uh, we might not be able to anticipate, but that we'll be ready for. So it's a readiness question. What do you think about that? Well, you know, that's that's a challenge, too, because the the government and that the military specific is a reflection of the private sector and society. Obviously, there's there's a lag. When you look at policy, policy is always retroactive. It's very seldomly proactive. One, because we can't see the future. You know, we just don't have that ability. We we can guess at it, but it's it's really difficult to get it absolutely right. You know, so the the key to that would be finding the balance between individual rights and society rights. You know, so if you if you look at it from a little bit of a, a libertarian philosophical perspective, you know, individuals' rights end when they intrude on someone else's rights. You know, and that means something different for every person. So as a collective society, how do we protect individual rights while protecting the sovereignty of the nation and the society as a collective? Now, you know, DOD has really started in the past 10 years, from what I can see, leverage success from industry from such big social medias. You know, one is Dr. Dr. Plum coming from a background of working with Google as their lead ethical officer, working with Facebook on data analytics, but before that, working in several government roles and now coming back into the government and being able to bring those experiences on, you know, the protection of rights, but yet still being able to synchronize platforms and data. You know, and another challenge within DOD and the rest of government is the, the unique uh, mission spaces and, and assets that they work with. You know, DOD works together as a combined fighting force, you know, but the, the Navy has a very set uh, vector that they focus on so that they can excel at that. And then the Army has a little bit of an overlap, but again, a very unique and specific vector as, as well as all of the services. And then you get into, you know, the other lead federal agencies which used to be a lot more than there are now because they kind of got consolidated under DHS. But how do we integrate that data while still protecting individual rights is a challenge. And, and I think we're making progress on that. You know, we, we look at some of the, the larger platforms that are working on consolidating the data pipelines and bringing disparate data sources together for analytics while addressing security concerns you know, individual rights such as PII and PHI and things of that nature. Now, are, are we there yet? Absolutely not. We have a very long way to go. But we are starting to push that envelope and start to leverage success from the industrial side. Andrew, you've seen the world of data evolve significantly in your 20 plus years. Do you feel like we're at an inflection point where I'll borrow from uh, what David called inclusive nationalism, this idea of balancing individual rights and collective responsibility together to get network effects, share data. Obviously, nobody wants a runaway government, but everybody needs an effective government. And there are so many people doing the good work behind the scenes that you know technology could enable them to do more, to achieve more effects. But there's always those cultural challenges. And Chris, you mentioned it, right? Like you mentioned the sort of the libertarian policy. There's always, you know, the politics. We're voters. So, Andrew, do you feel like the data is at an inflection point where it would be very easy for us to see whole new levels of systems fielded to solve many, many more questions than we can, maybe faster than we ever have, just by virtue of sort of industry, commercial, sort of bringing technology innovation to the government that it's 
it's far enough along that we could do kind of like a societal leap forward or something, I don't know, grandiose and utopian like that. Well, the inflection points there from a technology perspective, cloud and compute and capacity and let's call it uh, common ground in terms of a landing zone for bringing things together uh, in a cross-agency uh, manner. That's there and, and the pieces have all come together to make everything possible. It all, I think ultimately you know, the politics, the people are the difference maker. And I think, uh, you know, even what I know from my conversations with Chris, it's a really interesting study and why some things exceed and, and perhaps even uh, reach success quickly uh, is dependent on leadership. Who, who's there to you know, set a path ahead and do they have the authority to do it? At the, at the scope and scale that, uh, that they may want to. So, you know, we're, we're lucky enough to be involved here at Click and, you know, some pretty ambitious initiatives bringing together data from across the multitude of agencies and systems, operational domains, and, and, and many other things that would have previously created pretty firm stovepipes. Ultimately, leadership is what brought it to a point where it's being created it will take even more leadership to bring it to a point where uh, it is viewed as joint mission. It will take even more leadership to bring it to a point where it is viewed as the asset uh, that is used as primary. And, you know, that, that, that's asking a lot of, of these leaders because none of these things are easy. So, uh, I, I wanted, I'm going to pivot your, your question to me back on to Chris and just say, Chris, you know, even just in your time from MDA and uh, over to here, you've had an opportunity to be part of a, the creation of an analytics agenda uh, that was brought together from across multiple different sub operational domains within a smaller agency and now come over here and witness how some of these things come together in organizations of, with more complexity or programs with more complexity. What are your thoughts on that leadership role and making that possible? Now, that's some really good points, Andrew. You know, there's, there's two, two distinct sides when you get into a, a conversation about leadership. You know, some believe that you can lead up the chain and some believe that you cannot. And I think that's really dependent upon the environment and, and every situation is one of its own. But one of the, the keys to success when you're you know, talking about these large scale initiatives with high impact is access. You know, do you have access to those that can make the decision? Do you have access to those with the resources? Do you have access to those that actually have the, the data sources and various aspects that you need to, to make it successful. So as you mentioned, you know, within Missile Defense Agency, I was part of the team to help build out their initial data analytics requirements. And when I was, you know, sat down and first started to map that out on what it looked like, I knew from an acquisition perspective, what my one year, five year and 10 year goal would be to accomplish to define success. But I wanted to open that aperture and say, okay, what were the other the functionals, you know, what would that look like for modeling and simulation, testing, evaluation, engineering, as we started to pursue digital engineering and went to them and basically said, what are your most significant challenges and what keeps you up at night? And when they told those to me, I was like, 
well, great. You know, those are the same things that keep me up. So I, I actually had them write the requirements for me so that we were able to speak with a greater voice. And this, this gets to how do you lead up? You know, so if I had went to leadership and said, hey, this is just an acquisition problem, you know, thinking of the little a, not the large a, it may not have been able to gain the amount of traction it did. But as coming to leadership as a unified functional voice saying, hey, this is the the engineering challenge. This is the modeling and SIM challenge. This is all of acquisition challenge. And here's a way we can start to address that. It was able to get leadership's attention and get their buy-in early to be able to get, you know, the authority and the resources. So that that's, you know, from a, a functional technical perspective. Now, from a, a, a larger perspective, as you mentioned on the click side, you know, we're, we're really lucky to get to work with a lot of agencies that are really pushing that envelope at a larger scale. And I see a very similar trend. You know, these these platforms and, and larger capabilities are able to be successful faster than most would anticipate because of some of their inclusiveness. You know, they've really opened that aperture and started to bring in different, different use cases. A, a great example is money. You know, and I love to talk about that because everyone understands that we all have budgets. We, you know, we all get paychecks. We pay our bills. Now, when it gets to the government, that's obviously on a much, much larger scale. But when you look at budgeting and finance, it, it really is horizontal and vertical because it takes dollars to buy capabilities or build capabilities, whether it's through manpower or resources or training, whatever it may be. You know, so a lot of organizations are starting with that so that they can, you know, build a, a success nature on how to do their analytics and bring their disparate data together. And then they're opening that aperture to look at more and more technical fields and build upon that success. So I have a follow-up question. This is the reason I'm going to ask this, and I'm maybe jumping a couple steps ahead, but I did a study for a certain military organization five years ago about sort of the readiness to use kind of decision tools, like how do you bring together, and then to hear you describe your acquisition war room, I saw some systems built for, you know, seven figures and more, and just the connectivity there, the interoperability was there across different security levels, the data wasn't there. I mean, it was in the pockets, but it wasn't really accessible to your point. Now, I think that that's the one change that's different, right? Is that if an analytics professional or just somebody like you with conscience and says, okay, these decisions could be made. Let me build a war room to show leadership, i.e. Chris leading up. Do you think we're at an inflection point where certain like decision war rooms, I'm, I, I always envisioned it as not a minority report for those of you who watched that movie where it's sort of super fanciful, but cool, really cool. And maybe not totally voice activated like the movies, you know, Tony Stark in his suit, right? Like that's the ultimate example on the other side. But something like a gaming, a gamified room environment where it would be much easier for visually all the data available to be represented in the different domains, financial, acquisition, supply chain, you know, HR, your personnel, so that people, leaders could literally make decisions while visualizing what they have. Are we to a point where we could sort of visualize information in, in these sort of war rooms that are in the movies, but we don't have to get all the way to instant, you know, you have total connectivity, but you could answer 10, 20 questions in a meeting faster than you ever could and have all that 
that information sort of prepared for you. So, so leading up would be, you know, sir, ma'am, we can make 10 decisions today to move the ball forward and all the data will be there so you can see, you know, what the financial impact will be, what the environmental impact will be. If your cost schedule and performance, your program is moving forward. I mean, it just seems like back to where we started, right? Interoperability and bringing things together. You've built one of these rooms. I mean, are we at a place where that could be a real application for analytics, sort of high-end decision-making, like like what you've already built? I think we're getting really close. I don't think we're there yet. And, and here's why. It really is a total environment concept that you have to tackle to get there, you know, things like governance, you know, so we, we have the raw data, is it the right data? Is it structured so that we can analyze it? What needs to be done to transform that data so that it can be analyzed? You know, you have to look at that in an entire environment. Now, where we're at today that I, I still believe is is very critical in getting to where, you know, you're describing on that all informed communication center or you know that single pane of glass as we will from a decision analytics perspective right now we're able to actually show leadership what we do know and what we don't know and i think there's greater value in that second part and that's how we lead up is we we're able to show them where the holes or gaps are you know the inability to perform a task based on the lack of fill in x now they're able to use their their positions, their authorities, roles, and responsibilities to impact change on that unknown. You know, it's like some of some of the previous leadership has said, you know, you've got the unknown, you've got the known unknown, and then the unknown unknown. So we're actually able to start to highlight that faster than ever. And I think that's going to drive more change to get to where we want, as opposed to, you know, the final solution. And, and it's also failing forward. I hear a lot of people talk about how we've gone to a zero fault leadership environment and, and to some degrees I believe I believe in that but I disagree with it in, in others and the reason there's a lot of arguments around that is because you know we see Congress getting more and more involved in decisions at the military and service level that we would not have seen two years ago three years ago four years ago you know and if you take a step back and ask why is that well I think it's just because it's a reflect of criticality of some of these decisions and impact of some of these decisions. And it, it, it really is requiring an all of government um, interaction to drive that. You know, so we've got two things going. We've got the functionals that are leading up by highlighting what we don't know. And then we've got the top parts of government leading down by saying this is where we have to get to. You know, so th those two driving forces, I, I really believe in the very near future are going to bring us farther than we, we've seen before. That's awesome. Do you know any unclassified examples of where folks are getting that right or are really close? So I won't say it's getting it right because this is a, a very, very difficult and very important topic, but suicide and sexual harassment prevention. You know, we've, we've struggled with that since the beginning of time. You know, how do we protect, you know, our greatest resource individuals? How do we, you know, make sure they're taken care of physically and mentally, you know, in some of the most stressful environments you can imagine? So from the suicide prevention perspective, you know, my four, first year at Fort Bragg, I was only there for 11 months. I did seven suicide funerals, seven in nine months. 
Some of them were from 82nd Airborne. Some of them were from 18th Airborne Corps. Now, it's a large footprint, but that's still a lot of funerals to go to. So how many of those were preventable? You know, so that's one of those great examples where we see more and more of Congress getting into the actual, I'll say, operational level decisions that we wouldn't have seen before uh, because of the impact of that. It's our greatest resource and we're losing them, you know, at an exponential rate. So how do we prevent that? You know, so there's there's one example. I, I don't know if we're getting it right, but we're definitely making progress. You know, the Navy with their data analytics is looking at command climate surveys and how do they impact those environments for things of that. And, and the other example I mentioned is sexual assault and harassment. Another very, very critical thing that we have to address. And we, we've we been working to address it. And some would argue that we haven't gone far enough. We haven't gone fast enough. Some would say we've made great strides. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to comment on where, where I believe we fall in that. But we have made progress through communication, through the highlighting of these specific data in these incidents. So you've got individuals at the lower levels which are screaming for change to come up. And then you've got the highest levels of government and Congress demanding that change. We're not there yet, but it definitely working to go in the right direction on those. That's great. Just thinking about what you're saying, it makes me think the inflection point is social and cultural much more than technical at this point. I think we're all in, in pretty full agreement that it's not the zeros and ones. It's as they say, the, uh, the meatware, I forget where I heard that, what's inside our heads or our hesitation. You know, bias is a generic term that gets thrown out. So I, I like that term, but bias isn't automatically bad. It's just like a preference can be a bias. Uh, being on a team is a bias, right? So, it, it, but the idea that we have to probe behind our thinking and maybe fears or we don't want to get exposed. And I guess Congress stepping in on behalf of the American people or whatever interest they might have is a sign that that's an interoperability, right? Our system was built so that there's checks and balances and kind of everybody can kind of reach into the other systems of government. So that's interesting. I don't know, Andrew, Courtney, as you as we sort of wrap, we're always trying to think from the perspective of the person who can take action somewhere in the halls of government or in a cubicle or now working from home who has who has agency, who has the ability to lead up or is listening to somebody who's leading up and proposing something innovative by way of sort of sharing information, bringing different data sets together to make decisions maybe you didn't think you could make before. Where are you guys most excited? And where have you seen examples of people that are doing the right thing that maybe haven't been revealed or exposed? And we obviously, we can't talk about everything that we know, client privilege, but you guys have seen enough. What what are some of the things that are, are heartening, not disheartening, or encouraging, or that we can build on in this area of interoperability, working together and making systems and, and people that otherwise were separated now uh, come together more? <laughs> well, I'll just say, I mean, this is sort of very non-technical, a little personal, but I feel like we've learned a lot in way of interoperability over the past 17 months. I think particularly for government agencies, but even for corporations like ours, um, the thought was that, well, we everybody has to be in the office to get work done. We can't possibly let people work from home. That wasn't the case. And, you know, on top of just doing our jobs from home, in some cases doing them better, we're also being babysitters and teachers and 
all sorts of stuff, caretakers. Mm-hmm. So I have actually, you know, today, today I, uh, you know, dropped off my kids to school for the first time in a really long time and, and feeling uh, a little bit normal being, you know, at home and, and working and, and not juggling a thousand things. And it's hard not to feel like that in and of itself is, is progress towards that type of interoperability and, and the, the things that we can, um, that we can get through going forward. Yeah. I mean, the, the return to schools is a, a, you know, when systems operate as they should, the uh, combination of systems operate better. I'll tell you, one of the things I've really appreciated about having Chris join our team is the importance of people that speak the language of the organizations you're engaging with, the individuals you're engaging with, have the, the privilege of riding along on plenty of, of calls uh, since Chris joined at the beginning of the year. The conversations are simply different when you have someone who, Chris has worn a lot of hats. He's spent enough time to speak in the, with the specific terms and, and clearly be viewed as a peer. I think you can translate that very same thing into the way that you build teams around data, kind of coming back to this idea of, you know, is there an inflection point? I often read about this role of the translator, the person who sits between the data scientist and the business or mission owner. And I think you know, Chris has fit into our team exactly in that type of role and that he's gotten to spend enough time with uh, those of us at Click who speak data and tools and, and specific things and, and can bridge the gap over to those folks. And I'd say that these data communities need more of those. So just like Courtney's world is operating better, schools functioning, <laughs> the click world's functioning, the other pieces start to, to, to work. But, you know, again, they're, they're working together to, to achieve an outcome. I, you know, I, I think that's the thing. I, the relevant thought I think I have fear about how people like Chris uh, bring that data mission forward. Well, Chris, I know you're uh, now in the unique title of customer success advisor. Customer success by its nature has only like had a name for what, like five or six years, maybe a little bit longer. And uh, I can't think of a better person to be an advocate uh, from a company that has the ability and an industry that has the ability to, if just translated properly, solve some real important problems uh, for you to be a translator the way that you are. We appreciate it. We appreciate your time. I know uh, from a leadership standpoint, anybody listening, if you're going to lead up, if you're going to lead up, down, sideways, crossways, Wonkavator style, whatever it is, you want translators on your team. You want people that can connect multiple dots. And I do think that is the takeaway today is the inflection point is the people first and the data follows the questions. Chris, like you said, the questions you can ask and the courage and the access to be able to ask those questions. So Chris, as we wrap, any final thoughts good, bad, and different on uh, sort of your experience being outside of government? Do you wish you could go back? And uh, what do you tell the folks who are rushing to leave and join industry or rushing to get into government? Stay put and translate? Or, or what, what, what have you learned uh, since that now that you're here that you can reveal <laughs> to your friends on the inside still? So, so that's interesting because just in the past month, I've been asked that question probably six times. So I, I would have to say my advice is to find success. 
you know, so what, what are you looking to actually achieve? In, you asked, you know, do I have any regrets or, you know, any aha moments? You know, I, w- I was really grateful for my career in government service and what change I was able to influence. I won't say I actually created change because it's a team, but what change I was able to influence. But I'm as equally excited to be able to continue to influence that that change, but just from a, a different perspective, you know, and bringing all of those lessons learned forward with me. And I think Andrew really hit on a critical critical point. You know, it's the translator, the storyteller. You know, one of the first questions I got asked within MDA from some of the functional leadership was, why now? Data analytics isn't new. We've had it, you know, since whenever. Math isn't new. Why now? And I had to put a lot of thought into that. And one of the things that I came back with was because at an early age, we're able to learn how to put words together to convey thought. And we're able to put numbers together to explain you know, physics at the simplest terms, because, you know, math is the language, you know, one of the primary languages of physics. But we never learn how to internalize that and how to use numbers and words together to be able to tell a comprehensive story. And the advancement of tools, which you hit the nail right on the head, technology will always outpace our ability to fully understand its implications. I mean, how long have we had flight and we still truly don't understand you know, at a granular level, why the molecules speed up to enable lift. But we, we know it works. So the why may not be, you know, as critical because we, we've been using it, you know, for 100 plus years. So the ability to be able to tell that story using the advancement of tools is easier than ever. You don't have to actually be an expert. But, you know, that kind of ties into, you asked me about an aha moment, something that we really didn't touch on, you know, maybe uh, be a key thing to, to touch on in the future is the data literacy you know, that's been an aha for me is the disparate levels of ability to be able to work with that data. Again, which is why a translator or a storyteller, that that person that can connect those dots at a granular and a much larger level become more and more critical. It's awesome. Well, thank you for your time, Chris. I hope to close where we started of the things we want to get right in the future, data literacy just the way we've described it better be one of them. And it's exciting to be part of that. All of us uh, get to do that every day. But with that, I think that's a wrap. Chris Wilson, privilege. Thanks for translating for and with us every day. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, Mark.